You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. In the beginning of Lord of the Rings, the main character Frodo is this meek and humble hobbit, and he's tasked with this daunting, near-impossible task. He must take the one ring, the seat of all evil power in his world, into the heart of Mount Doom. Sounds pretty ominous, pretty on the nose. But the problem is, is that Mount Doom is located in the heart of enemy territory in Mordor. And so as all the good guys are gathered together talking about this plan, how to get rid of this ring, there's one thing that's made clear. This is a suicide mission. It's going to be impossible to get done. And then partially from innocence and partially from his own ignorance and partially from his own nobility, Frodo steps up and he says, I will take the one ring. Those around him, inspired by his courage, also begin to volunteer to help him on his journey to complete this quest. And so what's formed is the Fellowship of the Ring, the name of the first book. But this fellowship is anything but steady. It's, it's made of mostly strangers, at best acquaintances, who don't really trust one another. They don't really know one another, frankly. Throughout the story, there's fighting, uncertainty, even betrayal mixed in with laughter and talking and eating and working together, just the things of life. And so it's a mixed bag. Even so, without these companions, Frodo would never have been able to complete his quest. And that's part of the beauty that Tolkien, the author of this story, was trying to put on display in his book. The beauty, uniqueness, power, and joy of friendship. And that's what what we're going to be studying today, biblical friendship. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Puritan, describes friendship this way. The world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendships, or rather, friendship halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. Friendship is a gift. But here's the weird paradox. We all want deep, meaningful, fruitful friendships, but it seems like no one else around us does. Life is busy between work, family, friends, school, church, other obligations and interests. Friendship can easily get demoted to the lowest rung on our priority list, right? Indeed, it feels like deep friendships become harder and harder to get and to keep the older we get. I've heard it said that uh, one of Jesus' greatest miracles was having a close group of 12 friends in his 30s, right? And it's a little bit funny, but it's also, it also hurts, right, because it's true. Maybe you've given up hope on friends because it's too hard or awkward and you've resigned yourself to the tepid, polite acquaintances the Lord has put in your life. Now, I'm not saying acquaintances are bad. They are indeed good and necessary. You can't be relationally invested equally in every person in your life. That's just not how God has uh, ordained or ordered the world. Indeed, even Jesus mostly spent his time and energy with 12 guys during his earthly ministry, and within that, a closer group of three friends of James, John, and Peter. 
acquaintances are to friendship what snorkeling is to deep-sea diving. Snorkeling is fine, but skimming the surface is not the same as exploring the deep. I want you to know, Scripture calls us to something deeper in friendship. Indeed, as Chris shared last week from Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. God desires for us to be in real relationship with one another. Let me put a point on this. Listen, friends are not some cool bonus if you happen to come by them in this life. God desires that we strive to have the best, most relationally fulfilling, God-honoring, Christ-exalting friendships we can get in this life. God has given us friendship like so many of his other gifts for us to enjoy and give him greater glory as a result of it. Your friends, or lack thereof, matter to God. My prayer, my aim in today's message is that we would be encouraged and equipped to pursue godly friendships, to be godly friends, as the scriptures even call us to. We're missing out if we don't pursue friendship earnestly and biblically. Now, as with most word or topic studies, it helps if we define terms. Everyone's going to have their own idea of what a friend is, but it's important we define it biblically so we can all strive towards the same goal, having the same definition. In his book, Made for Friendship, which I will reference often, Pastor Drew Hunter offers some excellent biblical insight on friendship. He defines friendship like this. True friendship is an affectionate bond forged between people as they persevere in the faith with truth and trust. I'll say that again. True friendship is an affectionate bond forged between people as they persevere in the faith with truth and trust. And trust. Our passage for today, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, helps us to flesh out this definition with scriptural meat. But before we jump into the passage, let's provide a bit of context for the book of Hebrews. Important to know what we're studying or what we're jumping into. You see, Hebrews was written at a time when Jewish Christians were experiencing harsh persecution. They were enduring imprisonment, the confiscation of their property, and they were being set aside as outcasts in their own society because of their faith. It was a hard time to be a Christian. And the church was being tempted and pressured to either walk away from the faith or compromise it somehow. And so in light of these difficulties, the writer of Hebrews is calling them to fix their eyes on Christ, that Christ is superior, that Christ is better to anything else they could think to have in this world. He builds this argument saying, don't change the gospel. To change the gospel is to make it no gospel, no good news at all, as Paul says in in Galatians 1. And so he's saying, Jesus is a better high priest, whoever lives to intercede for us. He is a better sacrifice, once and for all offered, never needs to be offered again. He's given us a better covenant based on better promises that secures for us a better possession and leads us into a better country. So the argument is laid in chapters 1 through 10 that Jesus is better than any other religion, philosophy, or earthly good we can hope to get in this world. So don't leave him. That's the plea. That's the, 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 the desire of the writer. For these Christians, however, these truths were not settling in. They were not uh, evident truths. And it was getting really hard to be a Christian. So obviously in the midst of all that, it was really tempting to tweak their faith slightly, to go back to what they used to know. You know, I can follow Jesus and still offer temple sacrifices like I used to, right? Maybe that way these, these people can get off my back. Or, you know what, I can follow Jesus and maybe not be associated with Christians. I'm not going to go to church on Sundays. Just have kind of a private relationship with Jesus. And maybe that way I won't be such a social pariah and stick out. These were the temptations they were facing. We'll talk more about friendship in a minute, but first let me stop here and ask. You might not be facing explicit 
persecution like these Christians were, but that doesn't change the fact that you may be tempted to walk away from Christ or perhaps not walk away altogether, but maybe the trials and temptations of life are, are bearing down on you such that it's tempting to alter your Christianity just a little bit. Maybe live a Christian light or a diet Christian kind of life, all of the flavor without any of the calories or the perceived negatives. Is there a desire to replace God with a different version of him? And if not a different version, with something that maybe seems more important or convenient? The truth is, there are plenty of worldly philosophies in this world that would seek to have us turn away from Christ. And that's why we have the book of Hebrews, to warn us and to encourage us. You see, the main caution of the book is found in Hebrews 13, verses 9 through 10, which essentially says, don't pursue strange teachings. Endure in your pursuit of Christ because he is better. Not just because he is right and true, but because he is better. There's nothing in this world that can compare to Christ. If this is the Bible's main caution for us this morning... How then do we guard against strange teachings, against falling away from faith in Christ? How do we make sure we don't lose our way or fall defeated towards our heavenward home? The answer in the book of Hebrews is that we guard against this through two things. One is right teaching, and the other is right community. We are to cling to the gospel, and we are to cling to gospel community. Now, so much can be said about the importance of right doctrine and right teaching. I mean, it's foundational to the Christian walk. How can you follow God if you don't know who he is and what his word says for us? It's foundational to everything we are, having right doctrine and right teaching. But our focus for today will be on the importance of gospel community, gospel friendships. God has given us gospel friendship as a gift to encourage us, to hold us accountable, and to spur us on to love and good deeds. According to Hebrews, the biblical community, the church, and friendships within it are God's gift to us as Christians to make sure we persevere in the faith and give God the glory he's due. So today we're going to be learning about what it takes to be a biblical friend. If you would, please turn with me to Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, and I'll read the text. This is where we'll be studying today. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. Now, our passage begins with a therefore, which ties the ideas previously shared in the book to the implications we're about to study today. The writer is saying, in light of this huge building argument for the superiority of Christ, therefore, because of those things, there are implications, there are expected responses that we should respond to. There are expected ways that we should live out those truths. And so we're going to be looking at those today. We're going to go through this first part fairly rapidly, the first four verses or so, so that we can hover on the last two verses which focus on our topic for today, biblical community, friendship. But it's important we read everything in context so that the last two verses are rightly understood. So you look up at the screen, it might be a little bit confusing, but there are two senses and three lettuces. It sounds a little bit weird, but you'll see it there in the first few verses. 
There's two indicatives, two statements of fact, and then three implications or imperatives, rather commands, that we are to live out in light of those facts. Look at the screen. In verse 19, it says, since we have confidence to approach God based upon Christ's saving work. And verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, therefore, we should do the following three things. There's so much that can be pulled out from here, but the writer in specific is focusing on these three implications. The first one of which is, let us draw near. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So because Jesus is our high priest and has secured for us access to God, we have this confidence to enter his presence. We should come. Let us draw near to God. The the door's wide open. God is saying, come on in, come into my presence. This is an opportunity unlike any other. When you've understood what kind of priceless treasure Christ has won for us, that the God of the universe, the God who created us, the definition of good gives us free access into his presence, that kind of reality should compel our hearts to want to be with God, to read his word, to pray, to make our decisions according to his word, to walk with him because he is good. We want to be with him, draw near with him. Experiencing that kind of grace should compel our hearts to draw near. But notice the qualifiers within the verse. We shouldn't just draw near willy-nilly, right? We, we should come, first off, genuinely, with a true heart, honestly and earnestly. As we come, we don't come because God is a means to an end. We come earnestly for God himself because he is good. We come with a genuine heart. We come not only genuinely, but boldly, in full assurance of faith. So we approach him with the idea that we cannot be rejected. If you remember the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, above, uh, no tongue can bid us thence depart. When you're done after a long day at work, you're tired, and you're walking into your home, and you're turning the key and and walking in, There's no thought in your mind about, gee, I wonder if anyone's going to kick me out of here. I wonder if my family's going to reject me. Why? It's your home. Like, there's there's no one who could say you can't be there. It's yours. It's your ability to access that freely. You don't go in uh, uh, with trepidation. You come in boldly. The same is true for God's presence. We're able to approach boldly because we have assurance through the blood of Christ. And we should also come with pure minds and pure bodies which essentially is saying that, that our thoughts and actions have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. It's not by our own works that we're able to approach God. It's because Christ himself has covered over us and makes us pure, makes us clean. So we are to draw near to God, verse 22. Verse 23, we are to hold fast in light of the reality that Christ has secured for us a uh, presence, access to God. We should hold fast. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We hold fast to God because we know he holds fast to us. So because Christ is our perfect high priest, we should endure through life's trials knowing he will keep us, not because our faith is so great or because our strength is so impressive, but because he who promised is faithful. So finally, we arrive at verses 24 and 25. Believe it or not, that was all introduction. This last section is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, but I don't, I don't want you to think that the previous points are separate. I don't want you to think that this is completely unrelated what it is we just talked about. The writer of Hebrews didn't think so, and neither should we. The connection is clear. If we want to draw near to God, and we want to keep the faith unwaveringly, then we must be a part of a community of faith. We must build up godly friendships and relationships to help us to this end. That's the connection that's being made here. 
We're going to look now at three observations about friendship from Hebrews 10, uh, verses 24 to 25, and flesh out what it means to pursue biblical friendship. Look here at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. If you're taking notes, the first point is this. Friendship takes work. We're going to break this down by the key words here. First one is consider. The word consider means to observe well, to comprehend, to understand with depth. It's not a shallow knowledge. The, the idea being conveyed here is one of thoughtfulness. The goal is stirring up one another to love and good deeds, and we cannot do this alone. That's implicit in the whole one another clause there. We're doing this, we're considering things, we're stirring up one another. This isn't something we do on our own, but it's also not something we happen to do naturally or organically. That is to say, love and good deeds are not just things that happen on their own. If we want to do loving good deeds, Scripture here is commanding us to consider, to think on, to be intentional about how we are to do that. This is so antithetical to our culture today, right? We think that if something doesn't happen naturally, then that means it's not authentic. And if it's not authentic, then it's not something we should pursue. With this mindset, friendship is something that should just happen. If you have to work at it too hard, then that means it's just it's not meant to be. And we do that with other relationships as well. We do that with marriage. Marriage shouldn't be work. Friends shouldn't be work. Uh, family shouldn't be work. Work shouldn't be work. Right? These, we, we have this implicit idea that things should come easy. Well, listen, it can, take, uh, it can be true that friendships often begin without effort. You're just hanging out. You like one another. It's chill. It's, it's relaxing. But that's not how friendships endure. You can start friendships that way, but that's not how friendships endure. If we want deep, meaningful, God-honoring friendships, then we need to be thoughtful about how we pursue and maintain those friendships. We work at it through thoughtfulness. But notice what it says immediately after. We are to consider what? How to stir up one another towards loving good deeds. Now, what are we talking about with stirring up? Right? Are we talking about mixed drinks? Are we talking about cooking? Are we talking about laundry? Like, what, what's going, up, going on here? The word literally means to incite, to irritate, to get riled up, to stoke, to push, to prod, to provoke. The word's actually used in Acts 15 when Paul's having a sharp disagreement with his best friend Barnabas. This sharp disagreement is, is the same word we're using here for stirring up. And it's an interesting word to, to describe how we should be interacting with one another, right? As we mentioned before, loving acts will not just happen. Good deeds will not just happen. Not, not only do we need to be thoughtful, but we are to be nudging, pushing, encouraging one another, stirring up one another towards that end. If considering is the planning phase, then stirring up is the actual action phase of this command. So it's not enough to just be thoughtful and well-intentioned. We need to put that thoughtfulness into action. In the same way, it does us no good to speak or act without any consideration of how to best serve our friends. You shouldn't be stirring up one another without considering how to best do that. In such a case, you're just agitating without love, and we know plenty of people who are agitating without love, right? That's not what we're being called to here. By the same token, we shouldn't spend our days reading, planning, brainstorming, and thinking about how to stir up one another, considering being thoughtful about these things, and not actually doing it or following through on it. It does us no good. This kind of service to one another starts with how you schedule your time around your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you keeping in touch through text or phone call, hanging out together? When you do keep in touch, are you talking about substantive things? Are you asking good questions? How's their walk with the Lord? How's they t their time in the Word? How are they handling life's pressures, family, work, health, finances? 
Do you have regular rhythms established in your life where you're thinking about others and how you can best spur them on, help them in their walk with the Lord to help enjoy and worship Christ better? Plainly said, are your friends better off in their walk with the Lord because of your presence in their life? For this to work, though, this stirring up and considering, we need to be ready to receive the stirring up and receive the considering. You see, the the writer posits these commands as a positive thing, something we are to do, of course, but the corollary to that is that it is something we need to receive as well. If this is a one another thing, then it it follows that we need to not only be doing it, but receiving it, no? It can be very uncomfortable to open yourself up to this kind of biblical friendship. When a brother or sister has the heart to ask you about your personal life or has the courage, boldness, and love to bring something to your attention that is concerning for them, perhaps a sin or some unwise behavior they see as intrusive? How does that make you feel? If that hasn't happened yet, how do you think it would make you feel? Chances are pretty uncomfortable. It would make most of us feel pretty uncomfortable if it's not expected. You'd probably be thinking, this seems a little bit intrusive. You've, you've kind of st- stepped into something that, that, frankly, I just want to be left alone. To be called out is to be exposed. Your sin or inadequacy laid bare. Your mistakes, which make you look like a fool, are put on full display when this happens. And it's uncomfortable. And yet, it is through this kind of agitation that the Lord ordains his people to be built up into maturity. And as we are being built up into maturity, we are also drawn together in tighter bonds as a biblical community of friends. Growing up into maturity in Christ isn't always going to be good vibes. In fact, it's going to feel more like being tossed around in a, in a washing machine than anything else, being stirred up. In college, I met my best friend, Ben. Now, I uh, played an inordinate amount of video games and watched a ton of movies as I was in college, as college kids are wont to do. And honestly, much of that was out of my own ignorance. I'd never connected how my faith might inform how I use my time and and energy. The the concept of stewardship had not really been built up and formed up in me. I was perfectly content to stay the path and continue wasting my days how I saw fit. And in comes Ben to ruin my life, to nudge me constantly, nagging at me, hey, come with me to the gym or go to church or come to Bible study or, uh, you know what, why don't you just turn off the video games and do something else? The audacity, right? Tell me to turn off my games. I'd love to tell you that I received these things well the first time they were shared, that even though Ben shared them with me lovingly, I responded well, but I didn't. I responded unlovingly. It's not a sin to play games or watch movies, Ben. Let me be. Get off my back, dude. But God used those agitating moments to bring to light other scriptures to convict me, to help me to to grow up and live out my faith in greater consistency to God's word and thereby enjoyment of God himself. One of the verses God used in conjunction with Ben's biblical friendship in action was Ephesians 5.16. Make the best use of your time for the days are evil. And in 1 Corinthians where it says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. We are to be good stewards of our time, and yes, that might even affect how we use our free time. I arrived at this, and this is, this is how God so often does these things. It's not just one friend or one verse or one sermon or one phone call. It's all the instruments of grace God is using in our lives, working in concert to bring about these realities in our life, to encourage us and spur us on towards the joys we can experience in Christ. Friendship is one of these instruments, a pivotal one, but it takes work and effort to cultivate these kinds of biblical friendships, both on the giving and on the receiving end. Now, as a, as a quick aside, some of you are sitting there listening to this and are thinking, this is all great. 
but I've been trying to do these things. I've been trying to be a great friend. I'm, I'm making the phone calls. I'm encouraging. I'm inviting people over. I'm baking the cookies. I'm making time to be with people, opening up my life to them. But it feels like it's amounted to little to nothing. It feels like it's not reciprocated, and I'm tired. I'm tired of pursuing friends like this and not getting enough in return. These Christians in the book of Hebrews had been feeling something similar. Let's see what the author had to say for them in Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12, if you want to turn there. Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving of the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Know this. God sees the work and sacrifice you put into relationships he surrounds you with both the good and the bad, those who are grateful, those who are ungrateful, the ones that are joyful ones and the ones that are difficult relationships. When you pursue others well to love and care for them as a friend, know that you primarily do this while God watches and knowing that your reward is ultimately in heaven, even if you can't taste and see it here and now. Do not grow sluggish or weary in well-doing. God is moving and working through our efforts to love others, imperfect as they may be and imperfect as our efforts may be and we ourselves are. And this is what the essence of the gospel, of gospel love looks like, to love without any need or expectation of reciprocation. This is how our Savior loved us. So then, we see that friendship takes work, our first point. Our second point is that friendship requires presence. Friendship requires presence. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. So how do we encourage one another to love and good deeds? Well, according to the Bible, you need to actually be together. You need to actually gather and be with one another. There are two categories of people in this passage. Those whose habit it is to neglect friendship within the church and those who pursue that friendship. Which one are you? As I mentioned before, the Christians in these times were under immense persecution. Life was hard, and so they stopped gathering for worship services. They stopped meeting face-to-face for anything because they didn't think Jesus was worth the hassle. They treasured other things more than Jesus and eventually fell away from the faith, as it references elsewhere in Hebrews. Part of how we guard against falling away and part of how we're able to stir up one another to love and good deeds is by not neglecting to meet. One of the dimensions of friendship that we often underestimate is that friendship is a function of time and proximity. If you want real friends, you have to invest time into shared experiences. There's no shortcuts in that. This is why at Grace Church, we so fully emphasize our Sunday worship gatherings. This right here. It's become old-fashioned even amongst Christians to make church on Sunday a priority. But we take from Hebrews 10.25 that at the very least, we're called to regularly gather together for worship. The word here for gathering is where we get the word synagogue from. It connotes some kind of formal gathering. The author here, the writer here, is talking about church. These guys were not coming to church. And at the very heart of it is that Christians were not regularly gathering together for worship. They were living their Christian lives apart from any family of believers, from any outside auditors, from anyone who might help hold them accountable. Sound familiar to today, right? Just Jesus and me against the world, but... But Hebrews does not see Sunday gatherings as an extracurricular activity for Christians. It's not plan B. 
We are to make a habit of gathering regularly to study God's word, to sing God's word to one another, to encourage, to counsel one another, to, to be with one another. And this can't happen unless we gather. If you want to persevere in your faith, grow in your faith, and be encouraged in your faith, and find friends to, together to do that with, then begin to invest in coming regularly, committedly to Sunday services. So the minimum expectation for biblical community in the text is that we'd gather for worship each week. But the implied meaning is much broader. Christians should be investing in friendships with one another regularly, even outside of church. Now, Sunday gatherings are necessary, but often insufficient in itself for crafting real, meaningful friendships to others. Now, again, it's not, it's not less than. We just said it's, it's implied in the text. This is what we should be doing, gathering together on Sundays. But it's not, significant, it's not sufficient enough for crafting real, meaningful friendships. It's just a math game. We don't spend that much time together in meaningful conversation and engagement each week. It's just a few hours. This is my chance to plug our after-church meals. This is why we meet after church to grab a meal together, to hang out at, the ho- at, at a house over here or at a restaurant, and continue to hear how it is the Lord has been working in our lives, to catch up with one another, to get to know people that we don't know, and to even chew over the songs that we've sung and the, the word that was preached or the word that was prayed, and encourage one another with how the Lord is moving in our lives. It is a sweet time to do that. I encourage you, as just an application, join if you haven't joined for one of these meals. But this is why gatherings outside church times are important. Hospitality, shared meals, tennis matches, basketball games, fishing, coffee talks, kids' birthdays, vacations. There are so many opportunities for us to be together, have presence with one another. But the question is, is why don't we take those opportunities? Well, here's a few observations. Number one is busyness. Life feels like it's always crazy busy. Although sometimes it's actually more so lazy busy than crazy busy, but busy nonetheless, right? Demanding work schedules, family commitments, school assignments, kids' sports, there's so much to do. How in the world does anyone make time for friends? The busyness of life keeps us from investing in friends because we place friendship as such a low priority in our lives. We tend to view friendship as a nice bonus rather than a life essential. But we need to stop thinking that good friends are like leather seats in a new car, a nice upgrade, oh, good for you. And instead, we need to consider good friends to be more like the oil that keeps the car running smoothly. It's an essential. But busyness keeps us from it. The other thing is technology. Internet, texting, phones. We are more connected now than ever before, but the the research actually shows that we are more lonely as a culture than ever before. It's fascinating. Why is that? Could it be that, that God himself made us with the understanding that it is not good for man to be alone? And that when he said such a thing, he included geographic proximity in that? The assumption that we should be present with one another? What does the Bible mean when it says in Proverbs 27.10, better a neighbor nearby than a brother who is far away? We are embodied beings. We were meant to be in proximity to one another, looking at each other, laughing, seeing body language, hugging, seeing each other's tone. I mean, it's just part and parcel of what it means to befriend someone, to be friends with someone, to be together. Now, I'm not saying the internet is of the devil or that texting and phone calls are not great ways to keep in touch. They're awesome, and they're necessary ways. Uh, They're necessary now in in relationships. It's just, it is what it is. But what I am saying is that those uh, those things cannot fully replace a face-to-face conversation or a meal shared together or a gift given and opened up on a special occasion and seeing their face and giving them a hug with it. Don't replace true friendship with the unsatisfying substitute, the crutch of digital communication alone. Instead, 
Let technology facilitate those face-to-face moments. Let it serve, not replace good friendships. Another final reason is mobility. It's unique to our times. Uh, We don't invest in friends because we're always moving. We don't have enough time in one place to set roots and establish meaningful bonds. I mean, our city is fairly transient. Actually, there's a lot of people here who moved here, which is awesome. There's lots of cool opportunities, work, family, whatever it might be that brings you here. But the fact is that, is that there's a constant possibility that people, when there's that possibility that people will move, it makes it harder to, to establish lasting bonds. Part of the beauty of biblical community is that there's a commitment in knowing that we will go through life's ups and downs together, but mobility can make that difficult. Again, it's just a function of the time and culture we live in now and just something to consider. Why aren't we gathering? Why aren't we present with one another? So by way of summary, we see why we don't pursue friendships well always, but we're told nevertheless that we must cultivate God-honoring friendships. Sunday service is a great space to invest, but then also outside of church in our homes, sharing hobbies and interests. As we spend time together and share experiences, this is where friendships are formed and flourish. As an application, some of you here may regularly attend Sunday worship service, and that's awesome, but then sprint out after service is done in order to avoid spending time with others. Now again, listen, I fully understand that. I am ferociously hungry at the end of service, and I want to just go ahead and go eat right after. But maybe your first application of Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 would be to just linger for a few minutes and be present and start that journey of getting to know one another. If friendships form through presence then the best ability you can have is not necessarily a warm personality. Some of you might be thinking, it's really hard for me to make friends. I don't really like that whole small talk thing. Maybe if I had a warmer personality, maybe if, uh, if uh, I could bake really good cookies or something, people would like me. Or maybe if I was really funny, then I'd be able to make friends. Now, if, if presence is important, then the best ability you can have is availability. So often, the best friends are made just because they are present when we need them. If you haven't made that mental or heart commitment yet, jump in, commit. Be present and begin to invest in the joy of friendship that God calls us to here at Grace Church. Others of you already do this. You guys are present, like, a lot. Like, y'all are hanging out, spending time with each other, and that's awesome. But friendship, of course, is not just purely a math function of time and proximity. It's not just about presence, although, again, as I just said, it's not less than that. If you put two people in a room together for a long enough time, that doesn't mean that they'll be best friends at the end of that, right? No, there's there's something else that needs to be present, and that's a common purpose. A shared desire or interest in something, and in our case, as Grace Church, that is Jesus Christ ultimately. That is our common purpose. So the questions to ask are these. What is the quality of the gathering time for you now? What does that look like? Do you gather committedly, whether on Sundays or throughout the week? Or do you just come and go without any real interaction or commitment to other Christians? If you do come regularly, committed, and talk to people, what is the nature, what's the content, the substance of those interactions? Is it just small talk or is it something substantial? As we'll see, the the whole point of gathering and being together is to encourage one another. It's not just to be with one another, although that's sweet and important. It's to encourage one another in the faith. So again, if you're taking notes, our third point is friendship has a purpose. Friendship takes work. Friendship requires presence, and finally, friendship has a purpose. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. According to the text, we gather for a purpose, namely to encourage one another in the faith. The word in the text means to exhort, to call someone out towards something. 
It's a similar idea to stirring up in verse 24. Friendships can be formed over lots of different shared interests, and the quality of those, of those friendships can differ tremendously, right? There are times where we see two people who call themselves friends, and they're hanging out with one another and kind of sniping at each other and destroying each other, and, and you kind of look at that and you're like, wow, if that's friendship, I don't want to be your enemy, right? But the Bible makes clear that friendship is a powerful relationship with an important purpose, namely to drive us further into Christ's arms and to see us more fully enjoy him. So in the spirit of considering here a few purposes of friendship, things for us to strive for, things that friends should be according to the scriptures. Number one, friends are to be outside auditors. Proverbs 27.9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Does anyone here bake? I, uh, nice, thank you, Allie. Uh, I love baking. I don't do it nearly as much as I should, but I enjoy uh, sweet bread, sourdough, uh, cinnamon rolls. I love making that stuff from scratch. You know my favorite part? It's when it's already in the oven and it's just about done. Most everything's cleaned up and you're about to enjoy the fruit of your labor, right? And one of the cool things that happen is, is once it's just about done, it starts to smell and that lets you know, oh, it's, it's almost done cooking. You can actually smell it from the oven. And I'll tell you what, there's, it doesn't matter what mood I'm in, if I'm in the worst place ever, if I smell a fresh baked bread or a sourdough bread, that for me just completely lifts up my spirit. It just completely changes my mood. And you can insert joke here about me being a Cuban who loves bread too much and, and, and whatever, but, but I love that smell. It lifts my spirit. In Proverbs 27.9, it is saying that the joy you get from an aroma you love that you enjoy, it's the same kind of joy you get when you get counseled by a sweet friend. There is nothing better than when a good friend gives good counsel. They're able to evaluate your situation, but they also know your head and heart in it, and they're able to judge it against past experiences. They've lived enough life with you to know you and to know how you should interact in a particular circumstance or, or trial that you're going through. Find good, Christ-loving friends who will call you out or at least start the conversation when you're doing something that doesn't seem to align with God's word or you seem to be going through something that you don't really know what the next step should be. It's an unknown. Find friends who will love you enough to speak up and help you work through those things biblically. Friends who will care for you with their time, talents, and treasures in the pursuit of your good, again, namely seeing Christ magnified in your life. So friends are to be outside auditors, people who stand outside of your life, seeing you and your circumstances, and are able to speak into your situation with love and biblical truth. But friends are also character shapers, number two, if you're taking notes. Outside auditors, friends are to be character shapers. Look at Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Or Proverbs 22, 24 to 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Character is contagious. Tell me who your closest friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. If you have negative examples, negative examples or, or friends in your life, then chances are over time you'll be influenced by that example. Same goes for the opposite with positive examples. The Bible encourages us to pursue godly friendships that will end up being contagious with their pursuit of Christ in our lives. And we're walking, as we're walking through life, we need to have biblical friends that will help model for us what it looks like to be a Christian in all seasons of life, with kids, without kids, old, young, with a job that's going great and with a job that's not going great, with finances that are tight and not, with great health conditions and not. 
as we see those things play out in our friends' lives and as we see how they interact with God and God works and moves through those things, we ourselves are shaped for when we go through those seasons. Character shapers. Lastly, friends are there to be helpful companions. Outside auditors, character shapers, helpful companions. Not exhaustive by all means, but helpful nonetheless. Friends are there to speak truth and encourage godly living, but they're also there as sweet companions to help us through life's hard times. I mentioned before Proverbs 27.10. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Why is the neighbor nearby better? Presumably, because the neighbor will actually be able to give you that cup of sugar when you ran out of it, or help you with that leak in your roof after the storm has ravaged the neighborhood, or call you and tell you, hey, put out your garbage dummy, the garbage man's going to come. These practical, functional things that help us go through life. You see, friends are not just there to give you a couple verses and call it a day. Hey, be encouraged, go well. Uh, uh, Go off and be well. They offer tangible help through life's difficulties, whether that's financial, physical, or health-related. If friends are to half our sorrows, as Ralph says, then it's at least partially because they help to carry the burdens of life with us. So, by way of summary, there are three observations on friendship we've studied. Friendship takes work, friendship requires presence, and friendship has a purpose. The world we live in is full of pressures, temptations, obstacles, things that would seek to shipwreck our faith or derail it altogether. God's remedy, his medicine for this, is friendship, biblical community. You want to hold fast to your faith? You want a steady anchor to help you weather the storms? Then pursue biblical friendship. Listen, yes, Jesus is our ultimate anchor. He's the one who anchors us in the faith. But let's not be more spiritual than the scriptures here in this passage. The Bible calls us to friendship to be encouraged and finish well the race of faith. It's a stabilizing force in our life. At at the end of The Lord of the Rings, Frodo finally makes it to Mount Doom. He's gone through several trials. He's completely depleted. He's exhausted. And so he kind of falls at the foot of the mountain. He needs to still make it up in order to drop the ring in Mount Doom and destroy it. But he can't. He's completely wiped out. And due to the nature of the ring, no one else could pick it up and take it for him. So, of course, it looked like all was lost. The enemy was going to win, and evil was going to overcome everything. And as that's happening, then comes Frodo's best friend, Samwise Gamgee. Sam looked at the situation and says, I can't carry your burden for you. I can't carry that ring. I can't carry that burden for you, but I can carry you. A powerful image. Sam, this little hobbit of meager stature and strength, just as exhausted as Frodo, picks Frodo up, puts him over his shoulder, and takes him the rest of the way up the mountain so that he could complete his quest. Frodo couldn't finish the race on his own without his friend. And I mean, how many of us would not give anything to have a friend like that? To know someone will be there when we are weak and overwhelmed, unable to go on. To tell us to cling to Christ, to push, to pursue, to press on, because Christ is better than anything else this world has to offer. A friend like that is priceless. This is a picture of biblical friendship that the Bible sets forth and that God is calling us as Grace Church to. People who will lock arms with us and make this pilgrim journey together. You want to know a little-known fact about Sam and Frodo? Sam was actually Frodo's gardener at the beginning of the journey. He was actually just basically an acquaintance. An acquaintance. He started the journey because actually he got in trouble, he was overhearing, and he had to go. He, he made the commitment. But they had committed to work, to be 
present with one another and to pursue a common purpose together. This is encouragement for us. This is what it means to be friends, to be brothers and sisters in the faith, to be a biblical community. By the end of that journey, Sam and Frodo were closer than a brother. Pastor Chris shared last week, either you are sitting in the throne of your heart or God is. And if you're sitting on the throne of your heart, then everything is supposed to serve you, your needs, your expectations. If that's the case, then earthly relationships and even your relationship with God will always disappoint you because we are insatiable. We're never satisfied. If we are the king of our hearts, then relationships will be out of order, out of whack. You will be sorely disappointed and frustrated. We need to move away from a needs-based view of friendship. And it's not about what we can get out of friends. Although clearly we just shared there is a ton of blessings and joy in friendship that God has given us. But we need to be focused on how we can best see Christ magnified through how we are loving, forgiving, counseling, listening, and walking through life together as friends. Some of you may be feeling overwhelmed by this, even convicted. Perhaps you haven't been a great friend and you think, I don't think I can do all these things the Bible's calling me to. I don't think I can, I'd make a very biblical friend. I'm supposed to be wise and loving and spiritual and encouraging and thoughtful and I'm opening up my life to others. I'm just exhausted. I can barely get through the day. This seems impossible to me. Let me leave you with this. When we pursue godly friendship, we are merely emulating our Savior. We love because he first loved us. We befriend because Christ first befriended us. Although God has called us to friendship with one another, he first has called us to friendship with himself. If you're not walking with Christ, you will be hard-pressed to find the strength, wisdom, and courage to lay down your life for the sake or the good of, of another. The resources just won't be there. When we understand what a gift we have in Jesus, we will find the resources to be a gift for others in friendship because we won't be looking to other people to give us something that Christ has already won for us and given us. Jesus is the better friend. He's the one who loves, guides, leads, never leaves us, and will always intercede for us. The front door is always open to the Lord's home, and there's always a seat at the table. There is rest, and there is comfort in that. Look at Jesus' words to his disciples, and by implication to us. John 15, verses 13 to 15. Greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Grace Church, may we be a people who lean into this calling, who work at friendship, who are present with one another and encourage one another until the Lord comes. This is a beautiful picture of, of a biblical community, what the Lord is calling us to. May it be true for us. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.